Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and return Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, head on over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. On today's episode, we are talking about Earth Day, the environment, and climate change. Peace Corps volunteers serve all around the globe in many different sectors, and one area is the environment. Whether it be in the form of agriculture, small business development, youth education, even health and in the classroom as science teachers or English teachers, many volunteers tackle issues relating to the environment. On today's episode, I talk with three different volunteers who served in Africa, Eastern Europe, and in the Pacific Islands about their experience as volunteers working to combat some of the most daunting environmental challenges we face today. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. These sort of episodes where I talk to multiple people are a lot more work for me, but in the end, I really like what comes out of it. So if you like this type of show and want to hear more or have other ideas, be sure to let me know. Without further delay, here is the My Peace Corps Story podcast, Earth Day Edition. This is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story, story, story. First on today's episode, I talk to Andrea Marie Searles. We talk about her service in Tanzania and how it revolved around water or the lack thereof. I'm Andrea Marie Searles, and this is my Peace Corps story. I served in Tanzania Africa, Mufindi, Aringa, Kitelawasi Village. Um, I was a late bloomer. Um, I was 36, and so that was in 2006 until 2008. My work was to be um, bringing my master gardener skills and business ideas into um, and doing animal husbandry because I used to do farm management. Um, but what became on the first day was water was, there was no water when I was taken to the village and dropped off the first day and you were in the, we're in the, um, the Land Rover, you know, and Peace Corps, and we're going down these dusty roads off, you know, down the trails and we're going into sort of ditches, which I will learn these ditches or whatnot. That's where all the water rushes from the main road, the tarmac that we had just come from and making um, the landscape, washing away the landscape and washing away the topsoil. Um, we get into the village and before they drive off, um, those who were leaving me from the home office in Dar, Dar Salaam, I looked at them and said, oh, where's the water? And they said, 
Uh, and I looked over, and it was, you know, about 100 yards away. I said, it's right over there at the school, the primary school that I live by. And so I ran over to it, and I turned it on, you know, tried to turn, you know, turn the faucet. I turned the faucet, and nothing came out. And if anything, it almost just broke off the to my hand. So I ran back and said, there is no water. I said, where's the water? Well, we're in 2006. We're in the um, time where you can text messages was a little bit more popular. Um iPhone hasn't so much come out yet, and uh, they text somebody, and they gave us directions to where we could hike, and we went on a hike to find a um, a stream, a little stream, about um, about the width of a door, uh, so this is like three feet, you know, and very shallow, and you could you couldn't really put a a pot in it you would have to do more like a saucer cup or something to scoop out your water and that was going to be my water supply and that became um the beginning of having a lack of water and finding water the focus for me in homestay was of course to be submerged into african life um, and learning the language but it also became the beginning of the journey of of a lack of water and having to find a water source. Though at that time in homestay during training, we were able to go into town um, and get it from the well in town, which is sort of a um, city water of some sort. It's coming from a well and then it's piped in. Um, when I was in, when I would go for my service in Kitalawasi, um, a, and then there was Kitalawasi B, which was connected, of course, and that's where the government was. They had a water source that was always working. Where I was, was at the primary school, um, there was a water source, but it, for the most part, was not working. And that became the journey of how do I grow anything in the garden if I do not have water? And it became all the journey to learn that all living things need water. And water for this village that I was living in was being controlled upstream, uphill, of course, um, from a tank that was controlled by um, more government issues. And for some reason, they, money, would cut off our water. They would let it run into Kitelawasi B because that's where the government or that's where the district leaders were holding meetings, and a lot of them lived. But where I lived, um, there was the head teacher and just and the children. So teachers and children. And so they would cut off our water because they wanted the parents to pay more money for the water source. And the granite, I read an article in one of our Peace Corps books, magazines, and I think it was the ad was coming from... Um, British Petroleum, and the ad said, why should water be free? And I kind of had to think about it, because just like this situation in Kitelawasie, or in, when I was doing my homestay in Kimumba, is that the, the water was being piped in to these schools or to the villages, and that costs money. Cost money to have the tanks. Cost money to do the pipes, the labor to to um, to build this infrastructure. And so, right, why should it be free? 
someone was collecting it from the rain from the sky and that cost money to to um to hold it and to keep it clean enough to drink um it's a great question why should it be free but at the same time shouldn't it be free for all to be able to afford and that became an issue um and my result from struggling with the government and providing water sources for the children at school um, and to grow their crops and, and the fields at the school garden um, was to drill, to raise money and to write grants to drill wells and, and as well to um, create water, to build water catchments that would come off the school rule, school buildings and uh, the, yeah, the library in our houses. Um, because another ad that was in British Petroleum said, um, no drop should go wasted. So one, which made me think, was why should it be free? Why should water be free? Two, no drop should go wasted. So if, it's, if it is being wasted, then it's not being contained. And how doesn't it cost money to contain it? Yes. So here, there comes the value of putting, you know, if you can't do it yourself, someone else has to do it and you should have to, you should pay for it um, or do it yourself. There's a lot of um, thinking that goes involved with this and, uh, and as well, um, initiative of oneself to not be lazy, to do the work, to participate. But at the same time, um, we have to make it fair. And I think that's where we are today. And, in so many ways with environmental sustainability is who's responsible and who pays for it. And also at the same time, um, the continual question, which has always been throughout mankind is, are you doing your share? As Peace Corps volunteers, we often question our impact. And that's something that I wanted to talk a little bit more about with Andrea and the other volunteers I interviewed for this Earth Day episode as they worked to overcome these environmental issues were they able to have an impact and if so what was it I think my impact was the awareness that they have a water issue and if water without the clean water then we have these other diseases that come about throughout the village um we started collecting rainwater. We built water catchments, and we. Um, I when I left the village, there were a couple of water rainwater catchments um, on some building structures and wells, and that was for hopefully for the next volunteer that I did recommend that the village needed who would be fluent in the language could start doing more teaching about the gardens since they had a water source, which I did not have during my service. Once we leave Peace Corps and leave our site, our communities, uh, even the the good work that we did, like Andrea building the these wells and creating uh, different water catchment systems in our community, you know, you have to ask yourself, is it sustained? Is it still there? How long will it last once I'm gone? And that's something that I wanted to know. Um, she said that now the next volunteer would have a water source to to garden that she didn't have. But how long would that last? 
And I've asked several times, are the wells still running? And I haven't heard back. And so sometimes there's sort of this, um, when you don't get an answer back, it's because the answer isn't something you want to hear. So which means that the wells have dried up. Next, I wanted to know how Peace Corps had impacted Andrea, how living in Tanzania changed her life with regards to how she looked at the environment. The impact for me is, um, without a doubt, more conservation, sometimes with water supplies or just our um, our basic needs that we have, you know, the, the things that that we had about um, less consumerism, um, more um, recycling. And, and when I say sort of like when I buy something to eat at the grocery store, I eat it all. I don't just throw it away. There's a wastefulness. Water, when I got back in 2008, was to be my focus. And I, of course, got a little sidetracked, as many do, for you know jobs, and it didn't have anything to do with money. In that course, of, I was teaching English in um, Shanghai uh, for about four years after my service in Africa. I go to Shanghai, China, which is the complete opposite. Instead of being a rural village where there was nothing, I've got Lamborghinis going down the road and like 25 million people consuming. And um, and again, there was a water issue. You know, you couldn't drink the water that was running around the city. Um, you had to get it bottled and brought in. Um you couldn't jump in some of the water sources because you could get very ill. So water again was an awareness and the company I was working for started um, um, a theme song and a skit for children um, that was called for Earth Day. And it, it was called, theme song was all living things need water. And I thought, right, let's get back on track. And we made it into a summer camp for the children. Um, and the children loved it. They loved seeing the characters, for, you know, going after water. And they could feel it was a movement. You could feel it. And if we get it reached the, the younger generation, um, and I want to say, I, would, yeah, I will say it, um, with the uh, – well, the way Disney moves character people, you know, their animation and their songs moves people. And it can move people into action sometimes, especially the children. We have to reach the children. Um, it is their future. And I think when we move the children, then, of course, the parents will become involved, must come involved, you know, a part of it. And that will help. And then the grandparents Next, for the My Peace Corps Story podcast Earth Day episode, I talked to Michael Roman, who served in Caterboss from 2000 to 2002. Now, you may not know of Caterboss, but it is one of the first nations predicted to vanish as a result of climate change. He talks about his time there in that island nation and the work that he has continued to do to raise awareness and put a face to climate change. Here is his story. The year was 2000, 
and I was sent to a little country in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's the center of the world where the international date line crosses the equator. It's called Kiribati. I knew nothing of it, and nobody else around me knew anything about it. I lived on one of the world's smallest coral atolls um, for a couple of years, and a lot of things opened my eyes to just how environmentally fragile that nation is. The work that I was doing was elementary school teacher trainer, uh, which had me teaching on Tamena Island. Uh, the island only had three villages, north, south, and central. And I was in the central village uh, working with eight school teachers and about 30 of my own students. I think the entire school compound maybe had a couple of hundred. Um, the entire island itself had a population of less than 800 people with, I would say, equal amounts of dogs, chickens, pigs uh, to go along with it. As with Andrea, I wanted to know what Michael felt were his impacts as a Peace Corps volunteer serving in Kiribati. As a Peace Corps volunteer, I don't think I had as big of an impact as the country had on me. It changed my life, it gave me a new direction, and it sent me on a journey to continue serving Kiribati long after my service ended. Um, if I did make an impact, I would say my impact happened um, far after I left Peace Corps. Um, returning 17 years after leaving Peace Corps, I saw one of my own students and met up with them, and um, they are leading the charge on fighting climate change within the country today. Michael's service to Kederbas did not end when he COS'd. He's been extremely active in raising awareness about the future of his Peace Corps country. When I asked what exactly he was doing to continue his service, here's what he had to say. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm doing a lot. I'm doing a lot um, for the nation. Um, one of the things I'm working on is currently, um, right now, is setting up a movie doco um, documentary company from Germany to film um, within the country and within the Marshall Islands and possibly within Tuvalu um, to get human stories, put human faces to climate change and so that we have more of a human component as opposed to a scientific component to examine climate change in the modern day. I also work on uh, telling the stories of Ikiribas, or people from Kiribati are called Ikiribas. And so I work on social media to tell their stories. I write uh, papers for academia. I'm currently writing a book about my uh, service and continuing my service, juxtaposing it, me going to a foreign country, them coming to our country or New Zealand or Fiji or Australia or even Taiwan 
um, showing migration as both not just going one way, but back and forth uh, as a result of climate change impacts on their country. So what happened to me going to the country is very well seen as what happens to them when they leave the country um, that they can no longer live in because their their land is is disappearing. Um, I'm working through the University of Cincinnati to get that book done and eventually published. And um, I've worked on children's books to talk about climate change um, within Kiribati. I've worked on movie productions. I've worked on podcasts. I've worked on uh, in the media, on uh, television and print media, just to tell the world about a place that doesn't deserve um, to be in the position that it is today. It is one of the kindest, one of the most generous, one of the personally, I think, best countries in the world. Um, a lot of people say it's a poor country. I always counter with economically, it might not be a rich country, but when you look at it through the cultural lens, when you look at it through the human lens, I think it is a first world country um, based on how they treat each other and how they respect each other, how family is number one. Um, and family in Kiribati, family is everything and everyone is family, which makes dating hard. But um, it just shows the tie that these people have to each other that we in the USA, I think, are very, very much lacking. And um, I think that we can learn a lot from, from that. The work that Michael has been doing can best be summed up as putting a human face to the impacts of climate change. Here is one such story that Michael shares. So this is our well water in Kiribati. It smells horrible. It was salinized by a wave probably about five years ago. This is an old bottle about five years ago. And there's tons of plastic bottles in Kiribati. <laughs> um, it killed my niece. She was almost two years old. And as the only water well close to the house, the only fresh water source close to the house, um, she consumed it, got diarrhea that wouldn't stop. She dehydrated and she was killed by the water that's no longer fresh in the islands. So climate change doesn't just endanger polar bears. My niece, Junie, had a name, and she had a life. These stories, nobody hears. Nobody knows. They just know about the polar bears. When I talk, I, I do have her picture. Um, I show it sometimes, depending on the crowd, who I'm going to talk to. Other times, I just mention her name, and I tell the story. But if that doesn't bring climate change home for an audience member, 
I don't know what does. Because she, almost two years old, did not deserve to die. The effects of climate change are ever-present in Kiribati and other island nations around the world. But not everybody in those countries actually thinks that climate change is happening. When Michael was serving there, he could see it. But when he talked to his community members, some of them shrugged it off and said, no, they've been saying it for years. But it's not real. Here is an excerpt from a letter that Michael wrote home during his first year of service. November 10th, 2000. Dear Mom and Dad, it's so pretty here, but scary too. I heard about global warming, and I just wonder if it's true. Being here sure makes it seem real, but I guess I trust the U.S. government. They wouldn't send us here if they thought it was a real threat. I asked one of my Kiribati teachers about global warming, and he assured me that it was nothing serious. He said people have been talking about that for a while. They said that Kiribati would go under the ocean. They've been saying that ever since the 1980s. And look, we are still here. So you don't need to worry about global warming. Next for this Earth Day episode... I talked to Kate Schechter, who first served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ghana from 2004 to 2007, and then as a Peace Corps response volunteer in Georgia from 2016 to 2017. We talked and focused mainly on her Peace Corps response service in Georgia, where she worked with a small NGO that was committed to environmental topics. They worked on solar hot water heaters, flood control, plastic recycling, a wide range of topics. And Kate is also one of the leaders of the RPCVs for Environmental Action. Here's what she had to say about her service. My name is Kate Schachter, and this is my Peace Corps story. Uh, I served as a Peace Corps response volunteer in the Republic of Georgia from 2016 to 2017 for a one-year service. I was working with a small NGO of women who were working on alternative energy, um, flood control, waste management, climate, uh, climate change issues, community education. They were doing incredible work. It was a real honor for me to work with them, to help them with organizational development projects, um, primarily strategic planning, board development, uh, social media issues, some networking um, for funding, that kind of thing. That was my primary project, and I had a few other secondary projects as well. I was working and living in Kutaisi in Georgia, which is the second largest city in the in the country. And it was, I would describe it, the, the climate uh, or the weather, really, I would describe the weather as kind of Philadelphia-like. In other words, if it snowed, it would probably melt within the next day. Uh, it would, it was very cold, however. Uh, it was, it could be penetratingly cold, especially since there was no central heating in, in, the, in the homes. Uh, even in the office, we did have 
space heaters and we had we had heat but um, it was only on to while we were in the office in the houses we relied on little gas burners from the gas stove or perhaps a, a single gas burner in in one room in the home as far as the climate goes there there was uh, significant issues around melting glaciers the uh, greater Caucasus mountains are between Georgia and Russia, and the glaciers there are melting. There are 26,000 rivers in Georgia, and the uh, flooding problems are increasing as a result of the climate change issues and the melting glaciers. Another key issue, which is somewhat due, or which, which impacts climate change, is the incredible amount of waste and plastic waste in particular. Um, there's a tendency, especially in the mountain communities, to just dump the garbage over the ravine, which goes down into the river, which um, pollutes everything down downstream and along the way, um, causing bigger problems as it goes out to the Black Sea and ultimately out to, to greater uh, water sources. Now that I had a good sense of the environment and climate that Kate was living in, I wanted to know what she was able to do. What impact did she have as a volunteer? The impact I had was, um, I would say, minimal uh, in, in the sense that, uh, that I personally had. Let me just put it that way. And that's primarily because the, the, the women that I was working with were very knowledgeable and and really understood the issues around climate change. They were already doing and, and committed to doing incredible work to raise awareness and and get grants to they 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 got a huge European Union grant to set up the first municipal level collection of plastics for recycling in the whole country. There were other private and um, NGO led initiatives, but this was the first municipal responsibility for waste management, for plastic management. So they, they understood. Um, what I felt I was able to do in, in some ways was work with the university level group, Students for Environmental Action, that had been set, set up uh, two years prior to my arrival. And I was able to work with them uh, so support their efforts with more education outreach. They were involved in a multi-country uh, network and establishing a network between Armenia, Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine. And I worked with them on a several-day conference to, uh, working on looking at climate change, strategic planning, um, uh, volunteerism and, the, and what it means in the U.S. and how important it is to translate volunteerism into into their countries, and also on uh, alternative energy co-ops in the U.S. and how co-op structures might be really useful in in their countries. That was the part that I was most interested in, in in some ways, or most impactful in. At the end of each of the interviews that I had with Andrea, Michael, and Kate, I asked them what they thought you all could do to combat climate change, to help protect the environment, and get involved. 
here's what they had to say. Plant a tree. I really think so. Plant a tree and then and nourish it and take care of it. And um, watch your garden grow. I really think that when you start taking care of um, things, then you have a greater appreciation of things. And it's not that it's easy even to take care of one tree, but there's so much that one tree can teach you um, because the way that it grows, the way the water falls off the branches, now you know where the water is running down into the earth. There's so many things that nature teaches us. And I think it was, um, oh, it was Sigmund Freud. You know, if you want to know about yourself, you know, just watch nature. There's so much that nature can teach us. And I think that we must um, start digging into that idea as we're also digging into the earth to um, plant Plant the garden again. Plant the Garden of Eden for ourselves. Plant, um, plant hope. And I don't mean just saying it. I mean physically doing it. Taking care of our water sources. Um, I think is something that we can do. We've got to make sure that our water sources are being cleaned up. The easiest would be to like, learn, and share on social media, Humans of Kiribas, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Spreading awareness is the number one thing that we can hope for. Obviously, reducing your greenhouse, re- reducing your your uh, footprint, reducing your carbon footprint. It pains me to say this, but for Tuvalu, for Tokelau, for the Maldives, for the Marshall Islands, for Kiribati, for Tokelau, for the Seychelles, for coastal areas around the world, it might not be something that we can do today to save their future is written. That's really hard for me to say and to even admit to. But in my 17 years of being involved with this country, 18 years of being involved with this country now, I have seen lands vanish. I have seen villages, entire villages, disappear under the ocean. I have... um, I have seen population densities increase significantly. I have seen fresh water wells turn to salt water. I have seen the land die because of heat, because of drought. Um, I have seen a cyclone come in and destroy parts of the nation. My own island, Tamana Island, was hit, destroyed because of Cyclone Pam a few years ago. We have never seen cyclones in Kiribati before, but things are changing right now. They have been changing, and cyclones are moving into the nation. Um, there might not be much that can be done for them. While Kiribati may be the first, Kiribati definitely won't be the last. And 
if you're not thinking about what is to come by seeing our example, I don't know what to say. Think about New Orleans. Think about New York City, Lower Manhattan. Think about San Diego, California. Think about all these things. Think about Puerto Rico. Think about Texas. Think about Houston, Galveston. It is coming. Um, but in the United States, we're lucky because we can move inland. There's nowhere for us to move in Kiribati. There's nowhere for people to move in Kiribati because all the islands, except for one, which 92, 93 people live on, are only inches above the seawater level. And when king tides come, they're feet below sea level. And the king tides keep on coming. Uh, for any RPCVs who are listening to this in particular, I'd like to really encourage you to uh, join us in the RPCVs for, for environmental action. Find us on Facebook. Um, check out our website, which is a, still a, a bit under development, but uh, check out our website. Join us. Help us spread the word. Joining us is free. Uh, you, you join as an NPCA member first. Um, that's free. And then you join as an environmental action member. And that's free. It's easy to do. Uh, and we'd, we'd really like to spread the word through the RPCV community as much as possible. We've, are, we've recently identified a really interesting way using a, a, a program called UCAPTURE where we can track our positive impact through our purchases. And I, I won't say anything more about that right now, but I would just ask you to uh, go to our webs, to, to our Facebook page and, and take a look at what we're doing, take a look at what's possible and get involved there if, if you are so inclined. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Core Story podcast. This episode was an absolute delight for me to produce being a big environmentalist myself. For those of you who do not know, Earth Day this year, uh, 2018, is on Sunday, April 22nd. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. Share it on social media. Uh, share it with your friends. Tag people who you think might want to listen to it. And get involved. Get involved in any way possible, be it... Uh, local level community at your work or if you're an rpcv or just part of the peace corps community get involved in the rpcvs for environmental action until next time remember every volunteer has a story what's yours